For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what a recent public forum revealed about Tucsonan's health care concerns. How an immigration decision from the U.S. Supreme Court will impact Southern Arizona. Meet a woman from Syria who is sharing her native cuisine with her new neighbors in America. And join some of the estimated 1,500 visitors who walk the walk on Tumamak Hill every day. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Republican Senate leaders recently caught the nation's attention when they released the latest version of a bill that would reform the Affordable Health Care Act. Now many are struggling against political spin to try and understand how their lives would change should the bill become law. Tucson Medical Center held a forum designed to allow medical experts to inform the public as to what they can expect should the bill be approved. Zach Ziegler has this report. About 650 people packed the ballroom of the Doubletree Hotel across from Reed Park earlier this week, all seeking to learn about health care. Among the attendees was Warren Deming. Personally, I feel that health care is, is a right, that as a responsible community member, that it's important for us to, to have coverage. Many in the audience were concerned citizens, just like Deming ready to learn what they could from a panel of doctors, healthcare executives, and academics, all of which were studied on the new healthcare proposal. Others were there because the new law could have an effect on their livelihood. People like Dara Dupree. I'm very concerned about people losing their Medicaid, um, Medicare um, services, what it will mean to Pima County in terms of services for children, for um, the opioid epidemic that we seem to be experiencing here. Or Raymond Grapp, a physician who worries about the level of care he can offer to his patients. In my own practice, I saw many, many instances of people having difficult times getting care. And since retirement, I've been working in a Southside free clinic, which takes people with no insurance, and it's even more difficult for them to get care, especially hospital care. Tucson Medical Center, which planned the evening's event, has been bombarded with questions since news of the bill began. Hospital President Judy Rich says those questions are the reason they planned this event. And Tucson Medical Center, as an acute care facility and a health care facility, felt that it was our responsibility to bring people together tonight so that we could answer myths and theories with the actual facts. Um, just a couple comments about what it does a little bit differently than the House. At the front of the assembled room, the group of experts gave short presentations and then answered questions the audience wrote on cards. The panelists, including Greg Vigdor, president of the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association, spoke of cuts to public insurance for children, the elderly, and low-income people. The House bill is estimated to 
lead to 23 million Americans losing their health coverage, the Senate version 22 million, 300 to 400,000 Arizonans in all likelihood, and that's not going to be good for them. The cuts would hit programs such as the Arizona Health Care Cost Containment System, also known as ACCESS. El Rio Health President Nancy Johnson says those programs work well. Arizona has been a model access program, a model Medicaid program. Efficient, fabulous outcomes. Just in our population alone, we've been able to drive down use of emergency rooms and unnecessary hospitalizations by about 25 percent. State health insurance would not be the only benefit hit. Municipal health departments also receive funding through such programs. Pima County Health Department Director Dr. Francisco Garcia says his office would lose about 40 percent of its funding if the Affordable Care Act is completely repealed. What does that pay for? Adult immunizations, childhood immunizations. What does it pay for? Diabetes screenings, diabetes education, chronic disease interventions. The funding also goes into preparation for epidemics and health problems that become an issue for the entire community. These things, these problems that we face, whether it's adolescent pregnancy, low rates of immunization in some of our communities, whether it's how to respond to biological threats like Zika, all those things do not go away just because Washington thinks so. The impact goes even further. Healthcare is big dollars in Tucson and statewide. 300,000 Arizonans work in healthcare, according to the state's most recent employment report. That's more than 10% of the state's jobs, and Tucson's share of healthcare jobs is a few percent higher than the state's. University of Arizona public health professor Dr. Daniel Dirksen says thousands of Arizonans would lose their jobs. So I would say a very conservative estimate would be that if these things went through, at the end of the day, we'd lose 20 to 25,000 jobs mm -hmm. in the health sector in Arizona. The widespread ramifications are why, Judy Rich says, TMC planned this event. We care for our community. We literally take care of Southern Arizona. So it is our responsibility to help people understand that they need to speak up. And, she says, she hopes they'll take what they heard and call their representatives in Washington. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Zach Ziegler. You can join host Lorraine Rivera this Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6 for an entire edition of Arizona Week, looking at the potential future of health care across our state. Earlier this week, the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling that upholds part of President Donald Trump's proposed travel ban, focusing on prohibiting immigration from six countries where Islam is the dominant religion. This decision, which went into effect on Thursday night, has left the future of hundreds who were waiting their chance to come to southern Arizona in legal limbo. Nancy Montoya reports. I am a loyal citizen Abraham Hussein was born in Somalia and now lives in Tucson. Nine years ago, he was languishing in the largest refugee camp in the world. To date, more than a half a million Somalis have died from starvation, disease, or the crossfire of brutal armed combat. Nine years ago, I was in the, in the position. 
because I was a refugee by myself. I came here 2007. Abrahim says the Supreme Court's decision to allow part of the Trump administration's travel ban to go into effect will leave thousands of refugees from his home country, as well as from Yemen, Sudan, Libya, Syria, and Iran in refugee camps, where even there, they are not safe. Do you understand that these people will be killed? These people will die, children will die, and what do you think? What if you are the one who have this, you know, who's going through this problem? What will you do? To our allies and partners around the world. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said the Trump administration will not be deterred in advocating for and implementing the travel ban. Please understand, this order is part of our ongoing efforts to eliminate vulnerabilities that radical Islamist terrorists can and will exploit for destructive ends. We're joined by Jeffrey Cornish, who is the executive director of the International Rescue Committee here in Tucson. Have you ever known of a refugee who's gone through all of this vetting process and has come to the U.S. and caused trouble in terms of being a, a terrorist? Yeah, no, we do not. And and that's one of the things that has been so disappointing about the executive order and, and the rhetoric surrounding it is that it's 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 created an atmosphere where people believe that refugees are a threat. And this absolutely is not the case. You know, if anything, it's the opposite. So, um, you know, this idea um, is mistaken. And one of the things that we try to do is kind of bring the facts uh, about refugee resettlement to the public's ear. The first time the executive order went through or was in, uh, was issued, there was mass confusion because different agencies didn't understand what to do. There also seems to be a bit of, of problems with this ruling as well. My understanding is if you have a, a tie, to the U.S., you're allowed to come in. But what does that mean? No, that's right. About 80% of our refugees are what we call non-U.S. ties. Our primary concern is that when you reduce the number of refugees coming into the country, you're leaving refugees in harm's way overseas. So this, uh, you know, you have to understand that refugees, particularly in the Middle East, about 80% of the refugee population is living in urban centers. They're poor. They're living in abject poverty. They don't have access to the medical services they need. Children are suffering malnutrition. So in addition, when you say no to refugees, they lose hope in an opportunity to resettle in a third country like the United States, right? What happens, Jeffrey, to a refugee who has spent months and sometimes years beginning the process, and they're almost there to the very end, this measure goes into place, and they're stopped? Do they time out of the system? They do. And, and, and the system for processing refugees overseas is time-sensitive. Um, and so if they're stopped or prevented or slowed, uh, in this process, then they can time out of the process and they have to start from the beginning again. So the clock is ticking on these people. The clock is ticking. That's right. Because, um, you know, it takes anywhere from 18 to 24 months to get your security clearance and medical clearance to come to the United States. 
If that process is interrupted, they have to start all over again. This is the problem that, that, that divides families. Let's reiterate a little bit, Jeffrey. I think some of our listeners may have forgotten or may not know that the refugees that are being processed go through enormous vetting. You know, there's a there's a 21-stage uh, process that refugees go through. Um, it all begins with uh, UNHCR. That's the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. They interview the refugees and make sure that those refugees, after crossing an international border, um, are indeed legitimate claimants to refugee status. So once that is approved and the individual is granted refugee status by the United Nations, then the UN recommends refugees to the United States for resettlement. Cornish says that even after all the waiting and vetting of the United Nations, of all the hundreds and thousands of refugees waiting for asylum, only around 1% are accepted for resettlement to other countries, including the U.S. You know, and I always wanted to work with people, helping people. Was my passion. Nine years ago, Ibrahim Hussein was one of the 1%. Are you a good asset to the United States, you yourself? Do you think that you have something to offer this country? I did, and I offered a lot, and I'm still ready to offer a lot. I started working like two months, after two months when I came to United States. I am a loyal citizen. I pay my taxes. I work hard. Um, I help other people. I don't only help the refugees, but I help any needy person, anyone who needs help. So I think, yes, I'm a good asset to the United States and also to my country. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. Settling in a new home can be difficult, even in the best of times. If you add unfamiliar customs, a language barrier, and shifting legal and political conditions to the mix, the resulting situation is one that few of us would ever choose to commit to. But for more than 800 Syrian refugees who escaped their nation's civil war and resettled in Arizona in 2016, no choice was ever given. Now, Bryn Baylor brings us the story of one woman who's building her new life around something that people everywhere can relate to. What do you think about when you're cooking? <laughs> she thinks of many, many things. She thinks of like she can even go to the moon and come back while she's cooking. <laughs> Usually, uh, she's constantly thinking about how the dish is going to come out eventually, where her children love it. Am I providing enough love, enough care for this dish as I'm making it? That is Azar Jamal, an AmeriCorps volunteer, translating for Syrian refugee Shahed Baez. She's also volunteer coordinator for the International Rescue Committee, which helps Shahed and her children resettle here in September. Although she's only been in the United States a few months and speaks little English, Shahed knows what she wants to do in her new home country, share her love of Syrian cuisine. Shahed is doing so at the Tucson Jewish Community Center, which is hosting a series of international cooking classes featuring refugee women. So she's saying when she used to cook back in Syria, there would be 
a gathering of some sorts. Well, Every time she would cook something, okay. it would remind her of that like specific like time when they got together and the entire family came together just to eat the good food. Tucson International Rescue Committee coordinator Patricia Rapolda explains that the classes bring people together, literally and figuratively. We want to introduce various refugee populations, and what better way than through food? The Tucson community, as diverse as it is, has an understanding of why food is such a central component to a good, solid community. On this afternoon, about 25 people have filled the JCC's sunlit demonstration kitchen. Shahed is attired all in black, save for a cream-colored hijab and yellow apron. They are ready to learn how to prepare four vegetarian dishes, including yalanji, fatouche, and baba ganoush. She wants to teach you the method of Syrian cooking. Thank you, thank you. Shukran, thank you. Each year, Tucson resettles about 900 refugees through three social service agencies, including the International Rescue Committee. The National IRC was formed at the behest of physicist Albert Einstein, who emigrated to the U.S. in 1933 to escape the turmoil of pre-war Germany. According to the U.S. Office of Refugee Resettlement, Arizona is one of the top 10 states when it comes to accepting refugees. Over the last 40 years, more than 70,000 refugees have resettled here. Currently, most arrive from the war-torn countries of Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Syria. Resettlement agencies help find housing, schooling for their children, introduce them to American culture, English as a second language classes, and also assist with job placement. Piri Lanes, an employment specialist at IRC, said the cooking seminars are a way to counter the images of refugees as traumatized victims. Shahed was the first featured instructor. I thought that was a really nice way of showing what resilience looks like, coming here and getting a chance to start fresh in a different way than what we keep seeing on Facebook. On this particular day, students learned how to roll grape leaves, roast eggplant, fold in pomegranate molasses, and even different ways to chop tomatoes. Some dishes require a rough chop, while others need crisp slices. She's using the, radish, the radishes to make flowers out of them. Let me ask her how she did it, because I don't even know how to explain this in English. So you definitely need a very sharp knife. Class participant Jimmy Wynn said the classes go beyond simply sharing recipes. They help merge cultures. What do people say when they get together? They want to break bread. And so in this sense, we're actually baking bread. And this is our chance to help them feel welcome as well. The IRC's Rapolda said the classes are important to help refugee women, many of whom don't speak English, feel that they have something to offer their new home country. There's a lot of ways that people can relate to refugees. Obviously, you know, their experiences may be different, but they can understand that just having another person be there and assist them is extremely important. We really see the kindness and compassion of people through events like this, so we're, we're very grateful. The Tucson Jewish Community Center's next cooking class will be held August 6th. More information is at tucsonjcc.org. This is Bryn Baylor for Arizona Spotlight. Bryn Baylor is a freelance journalist based in Tucson.
In the middle of our current heat wave, it might be hard to imagine taking a stroll along the 2.9-mile circuit of the trail on Tumamoc Hill, located just west of downtown Tucson. But daily, an estimated 1,500 Tucson residents and visitors of all ages do just that. They take advantage of the trail's natural eastside shade in the early evening to get a cardio workout and a sense of our community's diversity. Next, producer Andrew Brown talks to some of the folks on the trail and gets some historical context from Ben Wilder, the acting director of the Desert Laboratory, a national historic landmark on Tumamoc Hill. It's pretty amazing that Tucson has this. Come out here on any given afternoon and you'll see hundreds of people walking and they're from all over the city. I'm part of the river of people moving up and down this hill. We come here five days a week. Since we started, we maybe not go all the way to the top, but now we can. We just love it, just going and seeing the view at the end as a reward. I lost 50 pounds since I've been doing this. I've battled depression and anxiety for quite a long time, pretty much my whole life, so this is a good way for me to stay active and not be stuck in a gym. My three favorite things about Tumamoc, the first thing is the beauty of the desert and the way that you climb the hill and you have all this beautiful view and perspective. And so all of the things that you might be fussing about in your mind kind of fall away. And the second thing I like is the people. And the third thing I like is the wonderful exercise. Running, some walking, some, you know, doing lunges, weighted vests. It's just crazy seeing how, like, everyone does it differently. I love the heat and I love the desert, so here I am. Gyms, I tend to feel like is a chore, and this I tend to enjoy. We're actually doing a 30-day Tumamoc challenge, and we're on day 12. <laughs> I love to torture myself, man. It's fun. Oh, it's just, I'm just addicted to working out, man. Halfway up, I wanted to quit, but I pushed myself. Push, push, push. Doctor's advice, got to drop a couple pounds, high blood pressure. So I got to get rid of the old gut. Yeah, get better shape. Rounds a shape, but he told me that, that kind of a shape. <laughs> the moms, I don't know how they do it. We see kids coming up here all the time, or like mom pushing strollers, and like we just tell ourselves that, like if they can do it, then we can do it. We come to work out and exercise and work out our booty. Sometimes when a guy walks past you, you get a pretty clear booty shot, so you know, <laughs> take a nice little look. <laughs> That's, it's not intentional, but when it's there, it's there. <laughs> You'll be walking and someone just like sprints past you and you're just like, someday, yeah. someday I'll be there, hopefully. <laughs> Today, the use of Tumamak Hill is the highest it's been in hundreds of years. The trail here on Tumamak dates over 4,000 years. This site is the longest continuously habited site in North America, and that really dates to the water flowing perennially year-round in the Santa Cruz River. For many of the same reasons we appreciate today, the views, the commanding features of it, were utilized by the original inhabitants of this valley, and there's actually two distinct periods of settlement when there are villages on the top of the hill, so collectively this is probably one of the richest archeological sites in North America. We get up here in like 20, 30 minutes. 
and we get to like just relax and enjoy the scenery. It's really nice. It's a little bit taller than A Mountain. You could see the whole city. It's it's really pretty. Drastically different than when I looked at here when I was graduating from U of A in 1972. Town's about five times the size. That's what we're looking at. It'll be from here to Green Valley and up to Casa Grande. A solid smear of humanity. Absolutely beautiful. And there's a nice breeze. We want to make this a regular thing to come here often. Really in the last five to ten years, kind of seeing the high numbers of about 1,500 people a day or so use that we have currently. This is not a park, this is a research station. The University of Arizona with Pima County, we're stewards of this land. It's a great privilege to be able to walk here, but that comes with responsibility. You hear English and Spanish regularly and sometimes other languages too. So I feel like when I walk Tumamoc, I'm really walking amongst all of Tucson. Ages, race and ethnicity, children, families, etc. Buff people, not buff people. There's a ton of people. There's people coming down, people coming up. I like that I can come up here at any like time of night and I never feel like unsafe walking up here by myself because there's always so many people. I don't think you realize how big Tucson is until it's nighttime and you see lights like throughout each side. It looks so big. It is one of the most beautiful representations of Tucson. You know, Tumamoc is, is all of us. It is this city, it is this history, it is the future. You can see the story that you just heard this Sunday when it debuts at 6.30 p.m. on the next edition of Arizona Illustrated on PBS 6. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.